Hello, America. Welcome to Your Leo Nation. I am the Chief Mark Garrett. OIS, Officer Involved Shooting. As I told you before, I was lucky enough to go through my 30-year career without having to fire my weapon. I was probably shot at a couple of times that I don't know about, didn't realize it, but uh, I was never in that position where, um, you know, I had to fire my weapon. And it's a rare event in the scheme of law enforcement. It really is. We hear about them. They're high profile. They're high impact in incidents, but they are really, really rare in the scheme of everyday law enforcement. The averages are really in your favor that you're never going to be involved in an officer-involved shooting as a law enforcement officer. But today we have someone, we have a young lady, a former law enforcement officer who was involved in a quite high-profile officer-involved shooting. And today our guest is Megan McCarthy. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful and appreciated to have this opportunity to talk to you. Well, the pleasure is ours. And you and I have spoken a couple of times and I'm just, I'm really impressed with your character. I'm really impressed with the things that you're doing proactively. We'll talk about that later on the show, but your incident happened, well, now going on five years ago, the shooting four and a half years ago, give or take. And you are a retired San Bernardino County Sheriff's uh, deputy. And I'll be talking about, you know, how you got there. And, but the incident, and I remember it, I was still the chief of Southern Division California Highway Patrol, which is Los Angeles County, uh, kind of neighbors where you were. And um, when this incident happened, and I'll be honest with you, what, when I saw this on tape, it was a, it was a neighbor mm -hmm. next door to where this incident occurred that was videotaping um, the incident. I watched the news like everybody else. It was terribly impactful, but I'll say this, when I saw it, from my years in law enforcement, from an investigation point of view, from a, a criminal behavior point of view, I thought it was kind of cut and dry. I thought, yeah. first of all, I thought it was miraculous that, and again, I didn't know at the time, and but I thought it was miraculous that this deputy had survived this incident from what you see. And as a matter of fact, before we get deeper, Anthony, go ahead and roll that tape so those people who have not seen the video can see that real quick. At first glance, the video might seem crystal clear. A suspect punching a San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy several times, stealing her gun, and then firing as she runs away from him. However, a jury has found Ari Young not guilty of both attempted murder and assault with a firearm on a peace officer. The jury apparently didn't even have enough evidence to find him guilty of resisting arrest, battery on a peace officer, or even for removing the firearm. So now that you've seen what what I saw, what millions of people saw, you can understand why I thought, well, this is kind of straightforward as far as who's culpable here and the likelihood of this person going to prison pretty high and so forth and so on. It didn't turn out that way. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, Megan, I'd love to hear your story about how you ended up in the department. And then we'll lead into how you got to that incident that day. Yeah, well, I don't really have that, you know, awesome story that when I was a little kid, I wanted to grow up and be, you know, in law enforcement. I was the first cop in my entire family. I came from a family of like business people. My dad was in the business world. My mom was a homemaker and I was actually in school for nursing. And one of my friends told me that I should come out on a ride along, you know, see the community through like a different lens. So I jumped at the opportunity and I went 
And I want to say it was about three, three and a half hours into my ride along and we got into a pursuit. It was an FTY. It was felony chief stop. It was all the things where, you know, you're, I'm seeing like, you know, cops in real life. And then after the dust settled and we took the suspect to jail, we went and got lunch and people were happy to see you. They held the door for you. You know, kids came up to you and you gave them stickers and you know, we went to a car accident and unfortunately it was pretty major, but you got to see the medical aspect. And so I was hooked. I left that ride along and I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to help the community. I get a little bit of the medical. I get a little bit of the community. I get a little bit of, you know, the cops and robbers type thing. And I applied for the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. It was my one and only agency. I had lived in the county since 2007. I knew that's where I wanted to work. And I want to say it was a couple months later, I started the academy and I loved it. I loved my job. I had some really amazing assignments. I had amazing supervisors and partners, and it was a great place to work. Well, it sounds like a kind of a fairy tale story. And by the way, for all of you people out there in law enforcement who work in recruitment, do ride alongs, offer mm -hmm. ride alongs, look at the kind of people that you can that you can attract and you can garner interest from when you actually show them what law enforcement does. It's a great story. I worked in recruitment for a long time. And I think ride along is one of the best tools that law enforcement has to offer in order to really encourage really great community relations, if nothing else, but certainly recruitment as well. So moving forward to this incident, the day of the incident, can you tell us just <clears throat> in order of what really, what happened? <clears throat> Yeah, so it was September 4th, 2019. It was a Wednesday, I believe, and it was the first call after briefing. It The call came over the radio, I want to say, between like 8.10 and 8.15. I had run home and grabbed a cup of coffee. My husband worked. It was my boyfriend at the time, but he's my husband now. He worked a triple homicide the night before. So I lived in the area, and I wanted to just go say, you know, goodnight to him. So he was going to go sleep while I worked. And, and by the way... So to, to clarify, your your boyfriend then, your husband now, is yeah. still a deputy sheriff. Yeah, he's a detective on the SWAT team for the sheriff's department. So he still okay. works in the same department. And my sister actually works for the department now. She works at the same station that I used to work at. So it's kind of funny how things work out. But yeah. anyway, the call came over the radio. And like I said, it was right after briefing. So I knew my partners were busy with other things. It wasn't my beat to handle, but I was in the area. So I told dispatch, send me the call and I would go handle it. And it came out as an unknown problem, which, you know, could be a multitude of things, could be nothing, could be something. So I start driving towards the address, which was less than 10 minutes away from where I was. And as I'm driving there, dispatch airs over the radio that it has been bumped up to a priority one. Mom was heard on the phone saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, get my son out of here. You can hear him in the background, but you can't make it out. And then dispatch is asking more questions. Mom stops responding, but the line is still connected. So you can still hear there's some type of verbal altercation in the background. Like I said, you can't make out the words, but you can hear it. You know it. And so it's bumped up to a priority one. So I respond. And as I'm driving, I see on my MDC on my computer that some of my partners have backed me. But again, the area of Victorville is very vast. San Bernardino County is the largest county in the entire nation. So you don't always have a partner right there with you. Needless to say, I respond. I park two houses down from the house. It's at the end of a cul-de-sac. As soon as I break the barrier of the driveway and the road, the front door flies open. And the suspect comes walking out directly towards me. He's matching the description. I know this is the address. We've locked eyes. He has that demeanor of aggression. You know, his fists are clenched. His chest is puffed. Based on my training and experience, I know that this is somebody who 
I've caught having a bad day. Right behind him is mom and she's holding a knife in one hand and she's still on the phone with dispatch on the other. I can hear dispatch talking. I can hear somebody else talking. But based on her arming herself against him, my idea is that something has occurred in that house where now I have a potential crime to investigate. So my attention is taken to the suspect. I want to conduct, you know, a cursory pat-down search. I want to make sure he's not armed. You know, go through our job as a cop. I'd be derelict in my duty if I didn't. So she's off to the side a little bit. She's still on the phone. I go to him and I'm telling him, relax, relax. What's going on? What's going on? And he's not really answering my questions. He's just telling me, if we fight, I will kill you. I'm going to headbutt the fuck out of you. Let me go. What are you about to do? You know, he's not answering my questions. So I go to place his hand at the small of his back, pat down his pockets, and about 16, 17 seconds into my interaction, he begins the assault. So this is, this is a great foundation to a little plateau here to stop because, you know, I've read the articles and read some of the stuff about the trial and I'm looking at what this defense attorney threw at the jury and it makes me sick to my stomach. I want to back up a little bit here. Again, you laid the foundation beautifully there. This woman calls, there's a problem at the house. It's not a detailed call. She returns a call now. It's 911. She articulates what's going on. She asked to get her son out of there that he's 5150. He's, he's out of control. Is this pretty accurate information well, you're there, getting now? There was no mention of mental health issues or 5150 at this time. Okay. The only thing we knew was there had been prior calls for service the day before. Actually, I think there was two separate oh. calls. My, I, didn't, I didn't go. It was on my off day, but my partners had responded and it was civil issues. It was an adult you know, son who the mom wanted out, but he wouldn't leave. He, you know, didn't want to sleep on the porch and she didn't want him in there. And so it was basically a civil mess. You know, there wasn't mm -hmm. technically anything criminal at that time, maybe trespassing, but he got mail there. So, you know, that's where it gets a little hairy. Right. So at the, you know, the day before my partners were able to talk them out, you go over there, get a breath, you go over there, go for a walk and everything was fine. So then the next day she calls and based on the very limited information that dispatch had put into the call and that I was hearing over the radio was kind of just sounded like a mother son dispute. Didn't really mm -hmm. give too much info on what was said in the house, what occurred. But like I said, that phone line, she stopped responding. So that's what created the response of maybe something serious had happened. And when you arrived, you did know that it was a male mm -hmm. that the mother was referring to. Right? Yes. And she said yes. son of the phone, but it was, so it's a male. And when you got there, based on your training, your experience, the fact that the mother, this woman, comes out armed seems pretty commonsensical to me that now you would be in a, first of all, self-preservation mode and put yourself in a position to detain someone in order to conduct a cursory investigation. Is that fair to say? Exactly. That was exactly what I tried to do. That is exactly what... I spent three days being cross-examined, trying to defend, you know, the defense attorney. We can talk about this later, but, you know, right now I think it's kind of important. He put in this mind that it was, the suspect was in self-defense of me. I was a primary aggressor. I should have let him leave. And I was trying to explain to him, like, it's reasonable suspicion that a crime occurred or was going to occur. Why else would a mom have a knife against her own son if something didn't happen? She was obviously in fear for her life, which tells me I, it's my job as a cop to not just protect her, but protect me and protect him. You know, yes. why am I, 
why am I going to sit by and potentially let something be occurring and not intervene? Well, this is very interesting. Uh, I mean, I put the word interesting in quotes. It, it's absurd is what it is that the defense attorney would make this argument. And for people who are not familiar with law enforcement, the way that you and I would be, and, and again, I'm not a lawyer, Megan, I don't think you're a lawyer, but of course we're trained on this reasonable suspicion, probable cause, there's a difference. But reasonable, reasonable suspicion is simply an objective belief, you know, and uh, the average person would believe there's enough information to believe that a crime has occurred. That's, that's reasonable suspicion in a nutshell. Maybe even not a specific person, but a, a crime has occurred. And now you couple that with the fact that the mom is called about her son and then a, a male approaches you in an aggressive way. When you respond to this household, kind of kind of puts two and two together. It, this is what it, one of the aspects of this that's so sickening that anybody would make this argument that he, you were the aggressor and you had no really legal authority to even detain him. So with that said, we'll keep moving uh, forward with the actual occurrence of the incident. Yeah. So once I place his hand to the small of his back, you know, I ask him, do you have anything that'll poke me, stick me, hurt me? I start patting him down. He gives me his right hand, but his left hand is still like, it's like the passive aggressive, not actively fighting me, but he doesn't want to give it to me. So I tell him like, just relax. What's going on? And he tells me, let me leave. Well, obviously it's malfeasance if I just let him leave if a crime had potentially occurred. So needless to say, I go to try and tense, you know, get his hands behind his back in a little more of, you know, like, listen to me, like, let's just figure this out. He spins around and he grabs my left wrist. So now we're facing each other. We're about, I don't know, five, six inches from each other. And he's ripping my wrist so hard that we're tug of warring over it. And I'm telling him, let go of me, let go of me, stop fighting, get on the ground. I tell dispatch I'm 415, which, you know, means I'm in a fight. And then we start going through the levels of use of force continuum. I try the verbal commands, doesn't work. I try, you know, defensive tactics, trying to get him on the ground, not working. And it escalates to the fact where I can't tell you exactly the time markers, but we're probably fighting for about 30, 40 seconds at this point, And we're kind of like wrestling each other. And so I'm telling him, get on the ground. The way that he's holding my left wrist, I'm like cross-bodied and I can't reach my taser. So the thing I go to is my baton and I rack it out and I, you know, tell him I'm going to hit you and I go to hit him and he grabs it for me and throws it. So I'm like, okay, well, that's not good. There's a weapon on the ground now. And as he throws it and my attention turns towards the baton, he grabs my butt on the back of my head and he pulls me down. He's trying to knee me in the face. And meanwhile, mom's on the phone, dispatch is hearing all of this, which in hindsight is beautiful because when he pulls my hair down, he detaches my radio, which ran down through my vest onto the back of my duty belt. So I'm trying to put out, I'm 415 and I'm not hearing anything. I'm not hearing any response. I'm not hearing my partner say, you know, like, send it to me. I'm in route code. And I'm like, where are my people? Like, I need my people. So we start fighting. And then about two minutes in, he starts punching me in the face. And he starts punching me and punching me and punching me. And now is when the video kicks on. So I think it was about two and a half, three minutes that we were fighting before that video of the neighbor kicked on. So now you can see we've moved from the driveway into the roadway. And I take my gun out and I tell him, I'm going to shoot you. And I got torn apart of, for this on the stand, but I, it was my last ditch effort to not have to shoot somebody's son in front of their mom. I did not want to have to shoot this person. I just wanted them to take me seriously enough to stop the assault, right? Like at that point, I was losing the fight. I started to feel myself, you know, blacking out the black curtains. 
I had been punched so many times, he broke the bone in my face. My only option was lethal force. And I still tried one more time to just get him to stop. Because in my mind, if I'm a person fighting a cop, which obviously I would never, but you would think if somebody tells you, I'm going to shoot you, you would stop your actions. Well, no, it just escalated even further. So then I, you know, stumble backwards and he falls on top of me. He mounts on top of me. He's still punching me. I take aim at his head and I miss. So then my he goes to get my gun and now we're like this my hand is up behind me into the gravel and he stops punching me and he starts going after my gun and so now we're wrestling over my gun and he puts his finger in the trigger guard and he has the other hand around the side and he's muscling me mind you i'm like this sideways so obviously my you know grasp wasn't fantastic and a round discharges into the ground so after the round discharges He's able to take the gun from me, and now I roll over onto my hands and knees, and I'm looking up at him, and I'm looking down the barrel of my gun. He has the gun to my forehead, and he pulls the trigger. And I had so much pain to my face, and the only logical thing that could come to my brain was I had just been shot. But you know what? Like, obviously, if I'm thinking that, I'm still alive, so we got to get out of here. So I turn to my side, and I run away, and I hear another gunshot go off. So I know he's shooting at me. And when I'm turning to run, I start running like due east, which is directly toward the house. And I'm like, ooh, I don't want to go there because obviously, you know, my mind is like, that's not a good backdrop. He has my gun. Mm -hmm. I don't want him to shoot into this house. So I turn right. And at the nick of time, he fires the bullet right as I turn and it misses and it impacts the house. And I run to like a little bush cubby area and I get cover. And miraculously, right as I turn around, my partners, three of my partners arrived at the very end of the cul-de-sac, take his attention. He fires a round at them. They get into a gunfight. He's shot six times, taken to the hospital. I'm taken to the hospital. And that's history. It is history. This is a little bit ancillary, but first of all, I mean, we, we just watched the video and I literally cannot imagine I cannot imagine the emotions, the feelings when you're staring at, look, the barrel of any gun, let alone your own service weapon, and asking yourself, what comes next? And can, can you tell everybody why, thank God, miraculously, that bullet was not discharged when he pointed at your forehead? Yeah, so... It's, you know, one of the things where you never want to happen. But in my case, it truly saved my life. My gun malfunctioned. So when my hand was up above here and he had a hold of the slide, when we fired the round, it stovepiped. So I wasn't able to fully eject. And by the grace of God, he didn't know that it had malfunctioned until he pulled the trigger and nothing happened. And then on the video, you can see him, you know, manipulate the weapon, clear the malfunction, and then he fires. So I should have been murdered. I should not have lived, but God spared my life with that beautiful stovepipe. And, you know, I'm thankful for it. But yeah, it's obviously one of those things that we hope doesn't happen on the range. Yeah. And, it, and of course, it's happened to me. It's happened to everybody who's, you know, fired thousands of rounds. But it just, they talk about God intervening at the right time and having a malfunction that actually saved your life is, it's absolutely remarkable. So you said something there about, you know, you should have, in other words, as far as this was playing out, you should have been murdered and, and you survived that, you missed that. And this goes to the trial. This goes to, I wanna really focus on this because 
what happened in this trial and the tactics used in this trial and legislation that impacted this trial is really indicative of, in my opinion, the hatred of law enforcement and the lies, the absolute lies told about law enforcement and how it is ruining society. It is disintegrating society. And people are not looking for the truth anymore. Um, but I want to talk about this. There was an article I saw written about an interview that you did on Fox News. It was actually from Daily Mail. And this is in July of 2023. And I want to fall on the sword here, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, as I call that group lag bag, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. In I said in July of 23, this article was written about your appearance on Fox News. And the reason I want to follow the sword is because I kind of pride myself at following legislation from California because it's, it's like a clown show. In fact, it would be hilarious if it weren't so devastating to the people who live there. But there is an assembly bill I did not know went into law. I didn't know about the bill, let alone the law. It's California Assembly Bill 3070, 3070 that you reference in this article. And it prohibits the unfair, I'm going to put some quote, unfair exclusion of potential jurors. And this law went into effect in 2022 before your trial. So it was certainly, it played. I'll let you talk about 3070. I actually printed out some articles and the actual legislation itself, and I'll get deeper into the weeds about it. But I want you to talk about from, in your own words, what 3070 is. Yeah, so Assembly Bill 3070 was drafted by Shirley Webster. She's a Democrat from San Jose. And this bill- Wait a minute, I got to interrupt. A Democrat? Yeah. Actually, I'm shocked. I almost fell out of my chair, but go ahead. I know, I could not believe it. (laughs) So 3070 was amended and retried basically after the Minneapolis effect of 2020. They wanted this bill passed so bad because they thought that there was not jury inclusiveness in criminal cases. So I think 3070 was well-intended. However, it was not well thought out. The aftermath was not well thought out and the populations that it would affect was not well thought out. So what 3070 did is during the course of jury trial, the prosecution, prosecution and the defense attorney both get a certain number of preemptory challenges, which means if you have a juror sitting there and they say, I hate females and I hate this and I hate that, and it falls into a gender, religion, ethnicity, they're immediately excluded because they have bias. They're not fair, right? Sixth and 14th Amendment right to a fair trial. Well, what 3070 did is they took away law enforcement. So prior to this, law enforcement was a protected class. If you said, I hate cops, they're all bad, you would be excluded because, you know, they're protected. 3070 took that away. So now cops are no longer protected. 3070 also said that if you have a juror that falls asleep or gives unintelligent or confused answers, you're no longer allowed to intervene. You're not allowed to wake up this juror who is going to be making a verdict on your client's behalf. It's just a mess. So The way that 3070 impacted my case was five out of 12 jurors after the verdict was read were found to have implicit bias towards cops and myself, obviously being the occupation of a law enforcement officer. They said, all cops are bad. All cops are racist. All cops fall into this stereotypical category. We think he was in self-defense. The criminal is, you know, off the hook. She's the problem. She should have expected to be killed because she signed up to do this job. They had no understanding of my testimony. Like I said, I was cross-examined by the defense attorney for three days. And I would look over and speak to the jurors as we are instructed to do. 
And a few of them would be sleeping. A few of them would be doodling. A few of them would be looking into space, not even listening to my testimony. And it was one of those things where from day one, I knew that we had just lost. I could see it on their faces. I felt it. I had a full-blown panic attack after reading my homicide report, going into the details. And the jurors were rolling their eyes at me, shaking their head. They thought that I was not credible and I exaggerated everything. It, I have so much, so much I would like to, to comment on, but it, it, it wouldn't do you justice. It would just be Mark Garrett talking here, but you were the one that was there and the day of the shooting, you were the one that had to endure this, this trial. You said something a minute ago, Megan, you said that clearly some of these jurors had implicit bias. And I actually want to clarify something here. Im implicit bias is something that the cop haters and, and, and quite, quite frankly, the rule of why haters use to uh, attack and go after uh, people who actually believe in the rule of law. Well, you have implicit bias, especially law enforcement, implicit bias. In other words, you may not know it's there, but you're born with it, or you, you've been trained in it in your culture. You may not realize it, but you're making decisions based on race and ethnicity and things like this unconsciously, implicit bias. You're telling me that these people were actually interviewed by the, the, the prosecutor, I believe, right? And they actually admitted that they had bias against law enforcement. I want to make sure, is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So okay. actually I didn't interview them, but the prosecuting attorney for the it's case- the prosecutor did. Yeah. Yep. She the reason I say is, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, okay. She talked to the jury foreman afterwards and said, basically, how did you guys come to this decision? How did you come to this acquittal? I don't understand what went wrong. And, and the jury foreperson said, basically, like, they hate cops and you guys allowed them to. There was actually an alternate that was seated that basically waved the flag and said, do not pick me. I do not like cops. They're all bad. I've had bad interactions. Don't pick me. Well, she was selected anyways. And then a juror had to be excused. So she sat on the seat of the 12 jurors. So, you know, do I think that there was a little bit more that maybe the prosecuting attorney could have done to mm -hmm. remove this person for other means? Maybe so. I wasn't there. I'm not in the legal profession. But, you know, if you have somebody basically saying up front that they're not going to be able to give a fair trial, then where's my constitutional protection? Well, it's down the toilet. And that's yeah. exactly what happened. But what I, the point I wanted to make was implicit bias is, is the, the claim is, well, you're, you're going to act subconsciously. Even if you don't mean to, you're going to treat people differently. But you're telling me at least, at least one of these jurors said to the prosecutor ahead of time, I don't like cops before the trial started. Of course, the right. trial starts when they're selecting jurors. But before testimony started, this person said they don't like cops. Is that correct? That's correct. That's what I was told. Well, this is that is not implicit bias. That is an explicit bias. That is consciously saying I have a prejudice. I have a bias against this person or this group of people. That's explicit bias. That's like Ku Klux Klan bias. That's what that is. That's saying I don't like this person or I hate these people because of X, Y, Z as a group. Now, I, I want to juxtapose that. I wonder if the defense attorney under... I don't think so under AB 3070. I wonder if the defense attorney would allow 12 or say 14 jurors with, with alternates to, to, to be seated 
who are all married to law enforcement officials. I wonder if that would happen. I, yeah. I'm guessing not. I'm guessing yeah. not. But someone who says they hate cops, that's okay. And this is what right. you dealt, dealt with in the trial. Yeah. I mean, it was a little heart, not a little, it was very heartbreaking to know that I basically begged the district attorney's office, like, I cannot testify. I just spent nearly four years trying to retrain my brain to not be impacted by this. I cannot go on this stand. And for this to be the outcome, I don't think anybody obviously expected. But for this to play such an integral role into the acquittal on the basis that, you know, these people, these jurors excused criminal behavior caught on camera with eyewitnesses with an admission and a confession by the suspect. You know, that stuff was omitted by the judge, which we can get into later. But, you know, they're letting dangerous criminals out into their community because they think they are doing the world a justice by not giving law enforcement being able to be victims when all they're doing is they're re-victimizing themselves because now you have a criminal who admitted to the crime. He said he would do it again. He said he doesn't care about what he did, but now you just let them go free. So then when he commits another crime, hopefully not against, you know, the neighbor or a family member, what do we expect? Why do we think crime is so bad right now? Well, this is, I talk about this a lot and you raise such a, I mean, you put it so well there. In other words, the people that think this is going to bring justice are more likely than, in other words, they're going to be affected by their own decisions in a negative way, that these people are being released back into certain communities, unfortunately, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large. And unfortunately, they become the victims of, of their own ideology. That's what it is, it's ideology. Exactly. That we're gonna even the score for previous uh, evils committed in this country, which we all agree that, that bad, horrible things have happened, inexcusable things have have happened in this country, but here's how we're going to fix it. We're going to even the score. Mm -hmm. We're not going to prosecute criminals because they look like me. They're part of my group and things like this, rather than being objective and say, listen, you, if you did the crime, you got to do the time. Obviously it's a cliche, but it's still true. Um, it, it's absolutely a shame. But again, California is, it's a Petri dish of this. It's not only California, but I say so often California being the largest state in the union and so impactful uh, politically, culturally, economically, that as California goes, many other states follow. And that's not a good trend right now. I want to talk, you mentioned, you actually brought it up. I want to talk about if you, if you have some information about the judge and what the judge did and some of the things the judge did in this, in this trial that impacted it, that's fine. Before we move on to the bill here specifically, I want to be clear on, on the charges. He was charged with attempted murder is that correct correct assault on a peace officer is that correct yep and of course the i forget what felonious discharge of a firearm or or negligent discharge of a firearm is that were there any more than those three charges yeah so he was charged with battery on a peace officer battery he and then he had the obstructing resisting, which, you know, 148 is a solid misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. And he had the removal of a peace officer's firearm. And right. on top of all those, he had, you know, enhancements of GBI and a few other gun-related things. So he was looking at some serious time. He was looking at like 65 years to life. And he got acquitted of the attempted murder and the assault with a deadly weapon against a peace officer. He was found guilty of a misdemeanor of negligent discharge of a firearm because the jurors believed when he shot at my back as I ran away, he wasn't shooting at me. He was just shooting the gun. 
and the jury hung on battery, removal of a firearm, and obstructing resisting. They could not determine. Well, I watched the despicable defense lawyer. I watched a couple of interviews with him talking about, well, he was firing one way and the deputy was running a different. I don't look, I don't know how these people sleep at night. I, I guess if, if I were charged with an, an absolute despicable evil crime, like this guy was, or uh, if I were OJ Simpson in 1994, I'd go out and hire the slimiest, most persuasive, despicable people as well that I could afford to get off. Because first of all, if I'd already committed murder, you know, I don't really have any compunction about, you know, right. hiring bad people to defend me. Right. Right. So I guess that I guess that in the scheme of things, and I, I'm certainly for a system where we have defense attorneys. There's no doubt about that. But I literally do not know how many of them sleep at night knowing the people that they put back on the street. And that goes from my time in being being in, in court on, you know, in felony prelims and felony trials, misdemeanors with DUIs. I'm thinking, what is this jury thinking? What more do they need? And back then, of course, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was sitting in the stand, I would say, my God, if we only had video of this crime, they'd get it. Well, they have video of yours and they still walked away and left this criminal back on the street with time served. So he actually never served a day, if I'm correct, for the discharge of the weapon, even let alone anything else. No. So you alluded to the fact that some that the judge was obviously a part of this malfeasance. Were there some of the things that you can recall now the judge did that ended up getting this guy back on the street? Yeah. So I am still in the process of getting my transcript so I can see all the motions that were heard and filed and and all of the objections and everything that was raised because, you know, we have a problem here. But based on what I was told from the people that were in the courtroom and my deputy district attorney was the judge is married to a lieutenant who works for a neighboring police department. I was told that she is very fair and impartial and she's a great courtroom to be heard in. Well, from the get-go, she refused to allow the suspect's testimony to be heard in court. Mind you, this suspect was interviewed two separate times. Once was, I don't remember the exact time frame, but it was enough time allowed, I want to say 18, 24 hours, after he had surgery and after he had anesthesia. He waived his Fifth Amendment rights. He wanted to speak. He gave more details about trying to kill me than I gave to homicide at the time. He said he wanted to kill a police officer. No female tells him what to do. He talked about how he put the gun to my head to try and end the violence, all of these horrendous things. The judge said on her own accord that she believed he was under the influence of anesthesia and the statements would not be heard throughout both statements because homicide went back the next morning and got another statement, refused to let the jury hear it. So obviously very damning evidence. If somebody is admitting and confessing to a crime, it should be heard as evidence. And, you know, a failure of the district attorney's part is they never brought in any experts. No experts were heard on my case, no anesthesiologists, no firearms experts, no use of force experts, no, you know, malfunction experts, whatever you want to call it. Nobody was heard besides me and my two partners. So this judge was able to make this ruling and we didn't stand up and call in an anesthesiologist and say, wait, hold on. We allow suspects who are under the influence of, you know, drugs and alcohol, their statements are allowed in court, but anesthesia, like there's no, there's no ruling on that. So you can look it up. There's no judgment that says it has to be X amount of time after. That does not exist. The judge made it up and ruled that in. So that was not heard. There was a piece of gun evidence. I can't tell you exactly what it was. Where basically a firearms report that she would not allow in because in April of last year, 
Russia hacked the sheriff's department. And what they did is they corrupted a lot of the files. And some of my case was involved in that where they are still trying to get it back. And the judge was angry that this hacking did not allow a piece of evidence to enter in. So she excluded it and told the prosecuting attorney to ask me if I would take a deal for, I think, like four years or something. But nobody would give me any indication on what was going on, what was happening. It was like sacred squirrel the whole time. As a victim of a crime, I think I deserve to know what's happening for my case for you to all of a sudden be asking me if I would take a deal. So I said no. And that was the last I heard. So like I said, I'm still waiting. Transcripts are about $11,000. They're very expensive. So I'm still trying to figure out what really went wrong, but that's what I was told. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And again, I, I wasn't there. And so I, I take you at your word with the judge and what ruling she made or didn't make. I, I, I don't understand, but I'll ask you this. And you did touch on this, the, the, the top of the show. How much of a how much of an effect do you think the George Floyd effect had on your trial? By the way, you saw the video, but this the suspect in this case was black, is black. Uh, right. I yeah, I, I use black that African American because I'm an American first, I'm black second. So that's just me. But but he is black. Do you think that the George Floyd effect had, you know, had an impact on this trial? By the way, with the prosecutor and the judge as well as the, as the, as the defendant, as, as the, the defense attorney? You know, I never want to put the words in anyone's mouth. I wish more than anything I could sit and talk to a juror and understand all of this. But I will say, when I left the profession in 2019, so I went through the academy in 2016, I was a baby deputy, I worked for three years. <clears throat> the climate that I worked under, whether I was testifying on a prelim or sitting through a trial, it was not the same as September of last year. And, you know, obviously the Minneapolis effect, we saw the Ferguson effect of 2015. These are very impactful things that happened to the institution of law enforcement. So yes, I would be, you know, not truthful if I said that I don't think it played some role. I think law enforcement has completely become discredited. We're not viewed as human beings. We're not viewed as allowed to being victims. They think that we just wear, you know, patches on our shoulders and we don't have families. We don't bleed. We're just robots. And I do believe that 2020 played a huge role in that. Yeah, well, I, I do too. I, I don't have any doubt about it. And I'll tell you, you know, what else plays a role in this and this this goes back and i and i do want to read a little bit about this legislation ab 3070 what what plays a role in what we're what we saw in your trial and not your trial the trial where you were a victim and a witness it is this this syndrome about everything everything must be deflected from the actual person committing the crime there has to be an explanation. There has to be a reason. There has to be an off-ramp. There has to be culpability placed anywhere and everywhere else. And this is where the whole implicit thing comes in because implicit, in other words, it's telling everybody, all of us in law enforcement or formerly in law enforcement with you and myself, Everybody of a certain race that you don't even have any control over your bias. It's it's implicit. It's below the radar. It's subconscious. You are bound to it no matter what you try to do. And what this does is it it, it eliminates the responsibility from the people who are actually engaged in their criminal behavior. And so with that, again, and 
my audience knows that I, I go back to California. I got out of there. I'm the free fit of Florida, but I still talk about California so much because it's so impactful. And I look, I did spend 60 years of my life in California and I still love California in certain ways, but what I don't love about California is the crap that that super majority Democrat party in Sacramento imposes, imposes on the people of California. And by the way, in addition to the emperor, Gavin Newsom as well. But I want to talk just a little bit here, just very briefly, so people understand really what happened to you through the legislative process. This is the important thing. A challenge for any of the following reasons, by the way, so this is the challenge when, a, when a, an attorney, a prosecutor or a defense attorney can challenge um, the seating of a particular potential juror. Following reasons is presumed to be invalid unless the party exercising the uh, preemptory challenge can show by clear and convincing evidence that an objectively reasonable person would view the rationale as unrelated to a prospective jury's race. A lot of legal jargon gobbledygook, but again, for my non-lawyer trained brain, what that means is, is that if a juror is challenged, the person making the challenge, usually the prosecutor, have to prove to the judge that he or she is not making a challenge based on the race of the individual or, or sexual orientation or religious affiliation. Is that how you see that, Megan? Yeah, yeah. And I actually have talked to a couple of, you know, defense attorneys and prosecuting attorneys, and we all have come to the conclusion that the burden has shifted now. Now it is no longer on the state. It's on the defense to say, hey, listen, I didn't excuse this person because of, like you said, throwing all these things at the wall. It's actually this. Well, now you're placed into this category of, well, they said they don't like this person, but they're Black. So we think you're saying it's because they're Black. So that's not lawful. They have to sit. So now it's put in this big old mess where, like I said in the beginning, I think 3070 was well-intended. I do not think the verbiage was well thought out. I don't think they thought of the ramifications of this because, you know, the, it should be fair and impartial for everybody, not just victims, but for suspects as well. And, you know, 3070 will impact civil trials in 2025, which will, mark my words, bankrupt cities. It'll bankrupt departments. Yes. It'll bankrupt departments. They don't even understand that these individuals that are going to be in my seat where maybe they're a defendant, they are going to be placed in prison and they are going to be wiped. Mark my words. I, I, I think your words are absolutely spot on. I read that where it does come into effect uh, for civil trials in a, in a couple of years. I couldn't agree more. So listen to this under what I just read. Here are the things that you cannot, you cannot disqualify a juror for in California. I had to read this three times. I said, this is like, it's, asinine. It's asinine. Yeah. Absolutely asinine. So, ladies and gentlemen, take a, and boys and girls, take a listen to a, a prosecutor or a defense attorney. But I think, in, like Megan said so clearly, I think that we're talking about the burden shifting. And these are the prosecutor's challenges here. So, you cannot remove a juror in a criminal case for one, expressing a distrust of or having a negative experience with the law enforcement or their criminal legal system, expressing a belief that law enforcement officers engage in racial profiling or that criminal laws have been enforced in a discriminatory manner, 
having a close relationship with people who have been stopped, arrested, or convicted of a crime, a prospective juror's neighborhood, having a child outside of marriage, receiving state benefits, not being a native English speaker. I love that one. You don't have to understand what's happening in trial. Just go ahead and rule after the fact. Not being a native English speaker. I said that one. The ability to speak another language kind of rules off the last one. Dress, attire, or personal appearance. And there's a 10th one here about employment in the field, so forth and so on. But those first two, basically saying, I hate cops. Like you said early on, Megan, you said this. I don't like cops. I think they're racist. And I'm paraphrasing from these first two points. You cannot challenge. You cannot uh, uh, disqualify a juror if they explicitly, and that's why I wanted to make that point, they overtly, they proactively, they consciously tell you that they do not like cops. You cannot remove them from a jury for that reason. This, like you said, is asinine, beyond asinine. It is dangerous, and it is fatal for a society. Look, whether one believes cops are evil, racist, so forth and so on, they don't. The whole point of a jury is for them to be objective, to not bring in bias. That's the point. The fact that the, the legislature in California feels that, that, that cops are racist, that's their problem. But the law, like you said, the 14th Amendment, the 6th Amendment, they, those amendments specify why this jurors have to be objective, at least the best of human ability to discern that. So yeah. I know I got in a tirade there, but I want people to understand that the person on this podcast today, my guest, Megan McCarthy, is a victim, is a victim of this legislation. And my God, by God, I hope that no one else, like you said earlier, Megan, is going to be a victim because this criminal is out on the street. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I couldn't have said it any better. The only reason why we're talking about 3070 and we're talking about my case is because I had the opportunity to go public. So think about all the other, not just cops, but all the other victims of crime that have been impacted by awful Sacramento legislation that can't say anything because they basically are under a gag order. You know it. If you're, if you go against the institution or you go against the department and you stand up for yourself, now you're blacklisted. I can tell you, I know of two other deputies that had similar situations where they were fired at from a suspect. One of them was caught on video and 3070 impacted his trial and the suspect was not found guilty of attempted murder and was found guilty of negligent discharge, just like mine. I talked to that deputy days after my acquittal and he said, listen, I can't say anything because I still have to work there. So I have put myself on this platform to stand up, not just for law enforcement, not just victims, but law enforcement who become victims, because that was something that really lacked in my trial is I remember it. And, you know, I wake up at 2 a.m. and I think about it sometimes. But the jury foreperson said that some of the jurors had a hard time saying that I should have expected this to happen. When, when you become a cop, there's the inherent risk that you may get killed. It's no different than me telling you, okay, well, when you drive your car tonight, you may get hit and killed by a drunk driver, but there's no, you know, restitution for you because you should have known that potentially you could be hit and killed. Like, what kind of world is that? Like you said, there is no accountability for criminal behavior, and the court of public opinion has completely outwashed any evidence or law. If the jurors don't understand something, it's not really up to them, right? That's why there's jury rules. That's why there's elements of a crime. That's why there's experts to help explain it to them. If they believe 
that a cop didn't do their job right, that does not take the burden away from the criminal. And that's what happened to me. I remember one of the jurors wrote a note to the judge during questioning and said, well, why did she have to search him by touching him? And let's just sit on that for I'm a second. So I, do I, my, it's, it, it's crazy. It's like, so gone are the days of logic and sense. You know, they said, if a cop doesn't do their job perfectly, are they in violation? So what is perfect? Perfect is objective. Everybody's different. Like my definition of, of perfect stop is different than yours, but that's why we have elements of reasonable suspicion and case law to go off of. And nobody cared. Not one juror sat there and said, you know what? We need to uphold the law and this person deserved to be in prison. Well, they didn't. And very well said, Megan, very well said. And, you know, you talked about you're standing up and you're standing up in a, in a, in a number of ways. And I think probably the most important way given the situation, given where we are now in time, you are, you are about as transparent as a person could be given what happened to you psychologically as a result of this incident. And you're not just talking about what happened to you, but you're using that experience now to help others. I want you to talk to us about that. Yeah. So, you know, obviously nobody really prepares for a mental health battle. Obviously, you know, we drink our water, we take our vitamins, we go to the gym for physical health, but what does mental health mean? I know when I went through the academy, it was never talked about. You go and you have a bad day and you do CPR on a baby and it's on to the next. I didn't realize the ramifications of mental health. So after my shooting, I remember going home and having like an out-of-body experience for days. Like this didn't happen to me. It's like, you know, you watch a video of an awful traffic stop on TV and you're like, dang, that's horrible for that cop. Like, I feel bad for them. But you kind of move on as, you know, your day should. And that's how I felt. Like, I wasn't able to come to terms with what actually happened to me and how I was in a fight for my life. And I'll be honest with you, the real trauma came through the aftermath. It wasn't necessarily the incident. Yes, the incident was awful. Nobody should ever have a gun to their head. Nobody should ever be punched in the face. But it was the re-victimization through the systems that are in place to protect you. And that's when I really said, you know, where, where are we going with this? I had my suicide attempt August of 2021. So it was nearly two years after my shooting. That entire time I put on this facade, you know, as a cop and a female, you always have to do a little more. You got to prove yourself a little more. You can't be, you know, emotional. You can't do this. So you have to fight a little harder. And I would see my partners in shootings and they would go back to work. And I'm sitting here like afraid of trash can lids closing. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Something is wrong with me. And I remember it was August of 2021. I texted my husband, you got to come home. I don't know why, but something's not right. I end up getting my gun. I take a whole bunch of pills and I was going to end my life because I was so tired of fighting. I felt like I had to fight workman's comp. I had to fight this person. I had to fight just to survive after I survived. So I say all that to say, you know, I'm four years past my shooting now, and I finally have realized that there are amazing systems in place to actually get help. I was real with my therapist after August of 2020, and I, and I said, I am so messed up. I need help. I went through EMDR therapy. I did color therapy. I did group therapy, individual therapy. My husband and I did couples therapy. Like, there's so many resources out there. But the problem that lies in the first responder community is we think that if you stand up and say, I need help, you're going to lose your badge and gun. You're going to lose the job that you love. You're going to lose the income for your family. And we're afraid to stand up when maybe you just need an outlet or a resource. So that's really why 
I am so passionate about mental health and first responders because if I feel this way, I know that other people do too. Well, it's, it's, it's powerful. And I, I, I commend you on, on sharing such intimate personal details about your life, but you know, these are the types of revelations that, you know, who knows what, what person out there hearing this and say, oh my God, you know what, if she got through that, if she got through that and she got to the point where she almost took her own life and now she's rebounded and she's moving forward and she's doing things to help not only herself, others, again, who knows how many lives, relationships, families that you, you might, and I'm certain we certain will save as we move forward. Megan McCarthy, you're an extraordinary young lady. And I say young because, well, you are young, but I'm an old dude. And I want to commend you on what you've done. I am sorry that you've had to go through this. I'm sorry you, quite frankly, I'm sorry you're still in California. I hope you and your family get out uh, of there. Me but, too. But, but while you're there, people like you can make an impact and hopefully can get California at some point back on the right track. I, I And I really pray i'm never going back but i really hope you do but laws like you were subjected to in that courtroom are absolutely despicable they're evil in my opinion and i pray for your continued growth and what you're doing for law enforcement and first responders community i know you're in sacramento i know you've spoken up there and spoken to cal chiefs and i really commend you so thank you with that i want to thank you and i'm sure we'll be talking again uh, the best to your husband please give him our best here from your Leo Nation. And uh, speaking of supporting law enforcement, ladies and gentlemen, please go to a Your Leo Project and donate what you can to our nonprofit partner. And we would love to help families out there that are suffering uh, from traumatic incidents that similar to what Megan went through. So Megan, thank you again. Thank you. We will be talking. God bless you. You too. Thank you.